Welcome to Writer Types, your one-stop shop for author interviews, book reviews, short fiction, and more from across the crime and mystery fiction world. My name is Eric Beatner, and beside me, my co-host, S.W. Loudon. Hi, Steve. Hello, Eric. Today on the show, we hear what Reed Farrell Coleman says about us when we're not around. They've been convicted of killing seven people. Author Joe Lansdale also tells us what people are saying about our new podcast. It gave them more confidence to come out of their stupid clauses and be stupid. And author Jess Lurie tells us what happened when she listened to the first episode of Writer Types. I figured I would start bleeding like a goat and poop my pants. <laughs> All that plus a short story from Eric Arneson, book reviews from Dan and Kate Malman, and Steve and I finally get our agent on the phone. That and more is brought to you this time by the Murder and Mayhem in Chicago convention, which we will hear more about later in the show. But first... Steve, have you read any good books lately? Yeah, Eric, actually, I read a thriller called Measure Twice by an author named J.J. Hensley. Uh, It's a very fast-paced thriller for 2014 set in Pittsburgh. J.J. Hensley is a former police officer and former special agent with the U.S. Secret Service. And one of the really interesting things he does in this book is all the chapter headers are the 12 steps of addiction. And so I thought that was a really unique device to keep the pages turning. I thought it was a great book. I totally recommend it. Wow, cool. You know, it's funny. The book I just finished this week was also set in Pittsburgh. Uh, It was called Hideout by an author named Kathleen George. And this is part of her Pittsburgh Police series. The first one of those that I had read was called The Odds. And I absolutely loved that book. I didn't even realize I was reading a serious book. And that's one of the things I love about this is it's got a little bit of police procedural to it. So if you're into that, you get that fix. But the recurring characters in these books are almost secondary to the main plot, which really drives each novel. And I really appreciate that because those plots are just really killer. So the Kathleen George Pittsburgh Police Series, I I look forward to reading a lot more of those. Who would have thought that Pittsburgh would be the next big thing in crime fiction? Kind of got me second guessing the fact that my next book is set in Florida. Well, you know, Steve, the Edgar Award nominations just came out, and those are, of course, the awards given out each year by the Mystery Writers of America. And on the list for Best Novel of the Year was Where It Hurts by Reed Farrell Coleman. And it just so happens that Reed is our first guest. As luck would have it. And Reed has written more than 20 novels, including the Mo Prager series, and he's handpicked to take over the Jesse Stone series from the estate of Robert B. Parker. But it's his new Gus Murphy series that's grabbing all the attention these days. I'm sure you are still flush in the glow of your Edgar nomination for Where It Hurts, uh, but let's be fair here, this is not your first nomination, right? No, no, I'm the Susan Lucci of the Edgar Awards. (laughs) I've been nominated three previous times, and I've managed to lose in three separate categories. So that begs the question, are you still working off of the same acceptance speech that you wrote several times ago? Yes, except I'll have to stop thanking President Lincoln. So, Reed, Where It Hurts introduced readers to a new character named Gus Murphy. Which do you enjoy more, launching a new series or getting a few books deep with a character? Oh, I'm going to give you a total cop-out answer. There are things about each you can love. A thing about a new series and a new set of characters is the exciting part about populating the world, figuring out the setting, the flush of new stuff. And then once you're in for a few books... You already have the characters. You already know the setting. Then you can focus on plot. 
you've had to say goodbye to characters before too. You've written a couple of different series, including the Mo Prager novels, which involve nine separate novels. So what's that like to let go of a character after that long? Well, letting go of Mo was actually easy because I had said everything I could say through Mo. By the time the ninth book, The Hollow Girl, by the way, I had girl in the title a long time before everyone else on earth. <laughs> well done. By the time the hollow girl rolled around, Mo was in his mid-60s. So it was difficult for him to be a hard-boiled detective, and I wasn't going to move him down to Boca Raton. And so saying goodbye to Mo was actually quite natural. So I don't know if you know this. My first public signing was with you in 2010 at the LA Times Festival of Books. So I want to know, what do you like most about getting out there and meeting the readers and interacting with your fans? You know, it's funny. I've been on tour many times, and now that I have two series, I go on two tours a year, and I always think, oh, I'm going to absolutely hate it. It's going to get old. And every time I do one, it's great. It's fun to actually connect with the people for whom you're writing. What we do is very different than a, a musician or an actor or a dancer. No one is standing there applauding for us. You know, we get done writing and, you know, I have to play canned applause. <laughs> and so I get psyched every time I do a reading or a signing. Speaking of applause, uh, Eric and I wanted to applaud you on your absolutely badass author photo. Uh, you've got your leather jacket. You're leaning against a wall. You've got a tough guy look in your eye. What's your advice for making a great author photo? Have a hernia when you bend over to take that picture so you can get that look on your face. <laughs> and that photo is actually taken with me leaning against the public bathrooms on the boardwalk in Coney Island. <laughs> <laughs> and this second Gus Murphy novel is uh, fresh off the presses. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it's called What You Break. It's a kind of a contemplation or a meditation on what do you do if you know somebody and you're really close to somebody who's done something really terrible? Does it change the way you feel about that person? And this stems from early in my career, I did some book signings with a New York City detective, a retired New York City detective named Lou Eppolito. And he and his partner were actually hitmen for the mafia. Wow. They killed seven people, but... Lou, when I knew him, was very nice to me. We did book signings together. And so I thought, how odd that is to find that out. He, he's somebody I like. He was a nice guy. But obviously, he had murdered seven people or had a hand in killing at least seven people. So what do you do with that? Wow. Well, we look forward to you losing the Edgar Award for that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, that kind of makes me wonder how many people you might have murdered that I don't know about. This weekend? <laughs> Are you that busy with murders that you have to narrow it down? I'm sorry. I wouldn't describe it as busy. I'm just committed. You do it for the love of it. Yeah. So, Steve, do you ever have trouble deciding what to read next? All the time. It's almost like I wish we had someone to recommend books to us. Well, Eric, you're in luck because you know Dan and Kate Malman? Each yeah. episode, they come to us on loan from Crime Spree magazine, where they're reviewers of both novels and comics, and this time around, TV shows. 
It's our very own Supergirl and Boy Wonder, Kate and Dan Malman. How are you guys doing? <laughs> We're good. We're Boy Wonderful. So what do you guys have for us this time around? I think everyone needs to watch Sneaky Pete on Amazon Prime. The writing on the show is excellent. It's a 10-episode TV show starring Giovanni Ribisi as a con man who's on the run from a gangster played by Brian Cranston. He takes on the identity of his prison cellmate, Pete, goes to visit Pete's family and is like, hey, everybody, I'm Cousin Pete. You haven't seen me in 20 years, so clearly you don't know what I look like. And then chaos ensues. Since it's got Brian Cranston in it, is this something that you would recommend to Breaking Bad fans? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's Brian Cranston as a bad guy. It will appeal to Breaking Bad fans, but we're not just getting another Walter White show. Hey, Kate, when you guys are watching a show like that, do you binge or do you? how do you meet out the pace at which you watch these shows? Neither of us has the capacity to sit down for 10 hours and watch an entire you know, whole series. Depending on what time it is, it's either a one or a two episode night and that's it. Good night if, if three, but no, I mean, two, that, two, two is max. max. Yeah, so it's kind of like watching a movie at night. Last year, one of my favorite reads was Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. I had not read any uh, Blake Crouch. I'd heard tons of good things. And this was uh, an amazing story I read in four days, but it deals with a man's journey. He gets through a very long convoluted sci-fi plot, um, kidnapped by an alternate version of himself. And he gets lost on a whole stream of different parallel worlds. And it's his journey as a scientist trying to get back home to his world, his family, and again, I say as fantastic as the plot premise and all the sci-fi, it's all heart, it's all yearning for family, it's crazy and it's exhausting and it's a brilliantly fast uh, paced read. Put side by side, I wanted more Crouch. Good behavior. This is a compendium of all three novellas that he did starring his character Letty Dobish. Completely the opposite end of the spectrum from Dark Matter. This is small-scale stories about a recovering addict con woman. Amazing different plot twists. And as exhausting as Dark Matter was when I was done, but completely different storytelling. Just fantastic, and I can't recommend them both high enough. Uh, just to, to sum up, your one-word review of Blake Crouch's writing in total is exhausting, right? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Put that on the next cover. <laughs> exhausting. Dan Melman. <laughs> Formerly of Crime Spree. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, last time Dan and Kate were here, they recommended a book by Jess Lurie, and you went out and read that, didn't you? I did. That book was called Salem Cipher, and it was great. So great, in fact, that I knew we had to invite Jess on the show. Jess, thanks for being here. You first got the attention of the mystery community with your Murder by the Month book series. How did you come up with the concept for that series? You know, I wanted a shtick. Funny note, for my first radio interview, the guy asked me the same question. I said, I wanted a shtick. And he said, a stick? What do you need a stick to write a book for? And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I just wanted a gimmick that would kind of hold the whole series together. And I was reading Sue Grafton. She's got the Alphabet series. Janet Ivanovich. She's got the, obviously, the one for the money, the number series. And so I thought months. And I took it. This may be a silly question, but why did you choose to start with the month of May? It's not a silly question. You know, it, what it is, it's the humiliating mean question that you're asking me. <laughs> right now. I did it because, I honestly, I didn't think the series would go for that long. And uh, I started in May because my birthday's in May. 
And because I did not know where to hide a dead body in Minnesota in January, because I didn't, <laughs> funny story, I was at a, a murder and mayhem in Milwaukee, phenomenal right. conference. And so it's 200 people from Wisconsin in the audience. And I'm like, well, I didn't know where to hide a dead body in January. Everybody's hand shot up. Like everybody's <laughs> like, what? There's so many, there's so many places to hide a dead body in the snow. The final book in the series, April Fools, is scheduled for release in 2018. What have you learned about your protagonist over the course of 12 books? So I really like being able to develop a character over the course of a series, but it's a double-edged sword because it's hard not to be stale, right? It's hard not to sort of reenact the same uh, gags and the same murders. And so what I've learned is that it has to be fun to me. I have to make myself laugh. I have to make myself interested. Otherwise, it's just one more job that doesn't pay very well. So you've been really busy. Your nonfiction book, Rewrite Your Life, comes out this May. Why don't you tell us about that one? Yeah, so that one's my only nonfiction. It's a deeply personal book. I actually held the book for the first time today, and that was kind of fantastic. But so that book came out of my experience writing fiction to sort of survive after my husband's suicide. And as I wrote, I found myself rejoining the world. And as I did more research, I found a lot of fiction writers actually transform personal experience, whether it's tragedy or joy or anything in between, they transform it into a novel, but nobody tells anybody else how to do that. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a try. You recently did your own TEDx talk in front of a crowd to share this incredibly personal story. What, what was that like? Um, it was terrifying. I was pretty sure I was going to get on that stage and you have to stand on a red circle. And I figured I'd make it as far as that spot and I would start bleeding like a goat and poop my pants. <laughs> and so wow. that actually, yeah, that that's how scared I was. And so I'm walking out there pretty sure I'm about to have the most humiliating public filmed moment of my life. And I broke through this bubble of fear so intense that it was really calming. And so I'm looking at, you know, 200 people and you've got the video cameras and it is a deeply personal story. Uh, and I am a Midwestern gal and we don't have feelings and we wouldn't talk about them if we did. I and understand so, that. Yeah, right? And so I got up in front and I said everything I wanted to say. I think, I haven't watched it. I refuse to watch it. You also recently published a standalone thriller called Salem Cipher, which is excellent. Um, oh, thank you. Absolutely. What, what kind of research did you do for the secret society and code-breaking elements of the story? Oh, I am so in love with the research I got to do for that book. I did a lot of, obviously, online research. I ordered a lot of books from the library. I have two huge plastic bins full of code-breaking books, which I knew nothing about. Wow. I uh, traveled to Massachusetts to go to Salem, Massachusetts to research locations. Uh, I, I was so deep down the rabbit hole, which is when I decided it has to be a three book series because I have too much knowledge that I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to use. It was a lot of work. You know, Steve, Jess is going to be in Chicago this March for the Murder and Mayhem Convention, and they just happen to be our sponsors for this episode. Yep. And you and I will be there too. That's right. I've been given the honor of acting as MC for the event. But here to tell us more about this one-day mystery convention is co-chair and organizer Dana Kay. Murder and Mayhem in Chicago is a one-day event for mystery writers, readers, and just in general crime fiction fans. Our aim is to bring together 
a group of people who are really passionate about the genre for a full day of panels discussing everything from craft to the business of writing and publishing to what the experts are reading. We have a variety of panelists scheduled to appear. Our keynotes are Sarah Poretsky and William Kent Kruger. We also have experts like librarians, editors, sales reps, like myself, I'm a publicist, talking about the business of crime fiction. And then of course we have some really great writers from local people like Marcus Saiki and Lori Rader Day to some out of towners like Alex Cretion and RJ Corretto. So we have a really good mix of well-known authors, debut authors or newer voices, as well as publishing pros. And we will be recording a special episode of Writer Types from the floor of that conference. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a really good time. Well, you are listening to Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner, And I'm Steve Loudon. And I think it's time for a story from the archives of Shotgun Honey. Every episode, our partners at Shotgun Honey hand-select a short story for you, and we invite the author to read you that story. Shotgun Honey is the premier website for flash fiction under 700 words. So to get your quick fix of crime fiction, go to shotgunhoney.com. And on this episode, we bring you Eric Arneson. Eric is a prolific and talented short story writer whose collection, The Throes of Crime, I can highly recommend. Here he is with his story originally published in February of 2016. Heritage by Eric Arneson. It was my last night on the job. Don't worry, kid. This ain't some cliche workplace violence story. I liked it there. Made a lot of friends. Did some stuff I'm proud of. I still miss the place, but it was the right time to retire. Snow was coming down hard when my shift ended. No surprise, that's what happens in Superior on New Year's Eve. I officially punched out five minutes early, 11.55 p.m. Why not, you know? Maybe I'd get home in time to watch the ball drop with your Nana. Three blocks from the factory, where Hill Avenue crosses North 28th, that's where this story happens. I drove the F-150 that night, thank God. I was headed north on Hill. A little red Miata was speeding west on 28th. I had the light, but that guy was drunker than Uncle Chris when the Red Sox won the series in 04. Plowed right into the passenger side. Well, kinda. Mostly went under. Lucky I was wearing my seatbelt. Always wear your seatbelt, kid. I got out to check on the driver. Couldn't see the front half of the Miata. Not even a little bit. No way he survived that. I did see the trunk. Popped open. A shiny silver briefcase inside. Kid, moments like this determine your fate. You willing to take a chance? Or will you play it safe? Up to that moment, I had played it safe. Had a chance to change jobs 40-some years back when frozen dinners were taking off. A buddy of mine knew somebody who knew somebody. Could have made a mint. Maybe. Wasn't a sure thing, so I stayed here, worked my way up to line manager at Superior Amalgamated. Safe, steady, boring as all hell. But this, this was a sign, right? I grabbed the briefcase and tucked it behind the seats in the F-150. Climbed back in, buckled up, listened to the sirens get closer. Sixty minutes later, the other driver was on his way to the morgue, and the F-150 was on a tow truck headed for Harry's auto body on Baxter. I got a ride home with the cop, Eddie Cook, a guy I went to high school with. I didn't sleep thirty minutes that night, thinking about what was in that beautiful silver briefcase. Money, drugs, corporate secrets. Had to be something great. Had to. 
Crack of dawn, I drove the Camry, the blue one your Nana liked so much, to ask Harry how long the repairs would take, and to get that treasure chest. A few blocks after leaving Harry's, I pulled into a parking lot, that spur convenience store out on Broadway, and pried open the briefcase to learn my fate. Cash. Stacks of glorious cash. Hundred dollar bills. I stared at it for... Shit, I don't know how long. A tap on the driver's window snapped me out of it. It was Eddie Cook, dressed in civvies, gun pointed at my head, telling me to get out of the truck. Turns out Mr. Miata and Eddie were partners in a side business, heroin. When he couldn't find the cash in the car, Eddie figured maybe I knew something about it. Came by my house, saw me leaving, followed me to Harry's. I got out of the truck. My adrenaline was pumping. Nothing boring about this. That was for damn sure. I punched him. Best right hook of my life. Knocked him to one knee, but he smirked, called me stupid, and pulled the trigger. I didn't feel anything. Just fell down. Then I watched the owner of the store walk out, aim his shotgun at Eddie, and blow his guts all to hell. Eddie was alive when the ambulance arrived. Not much longer. They loaded me into the other ambulance, still not feeling anything. The bullet lodged in my spinal cord. I was in the hospital three weeks, rehab another two months. Been in this wheelchair ever since. Kid, if you never listen to anything else I say, listen to this. Boring is underrated. Well, that story was good enough. I may even forgive Eric for spelling his name incorrectly. He spells his with a K and you spell yours with a C? Yes, I spell mine the correct way. You mean never trust an Eric with a K. That's my advice to you. That's really solid advice, Eric, with a C. And thanks, Eric, with a K and our partners at Shotgun Honey. For more stories like this, visit ShotgunHoney.com and come back here every episode for a new short story. It's time now for our Unpanel, where we ask several authors a question for a virtual panel discussion. This time around, we have authors Danny Gardner, Chris Calvin, and Paul D. Marks. And since all three of them write about investigations, we asked them to name their favorite fictional private eyes. This is Danny Gardner from Los Angeles by way of the city of Chicago. I'm the author of The Tales of Elliot Caprice. The series debut, which is my first novel, was titled A Negro and an Ophay. It's out on May 15th from Down and Out Books. Now, my favorite literary private investigator is Nero Wolfe. He was created by the great Rex Stout in 1934. Now, I first read him as a kid hanging out in the Chicago Public Library, but rediscovered him once I received a bunch of CD sets of old radio shows, many of which feature Nero as portrayed by the great actor Sidney Greenstreet. And there's just something about a chair-ridden, obese, agoraphobic genius too lazy to beat a trail on his own. That just gets me every time. Now, the desperate and clueless nouveau riche in New York City approach Nero's leg man, Archie Goodwin. Archie gathers the intel. And Nero solves the cases by sifting through Archie's mistakes. And he does so with utter ambivalence and opportunistic detachment, and it's delicious. Now, Rex Stout's power to craft back and forth dialogue is what makes this character my absolute favorite and a major influence on my own work. If you haven't read him, I suggest you go out and buy him right away. My name is Chris Calvin. I'm in Sacramento. I write the Mar and Kane series, One Murder More, and Samson's Gold. I don't do well with the word favorite, but there is a PI I wish I'd written, Simone Pierce. She's author A.C. Love's creation in his novel, Depth. Simone works solo in New York City, 
uh, circa 3500 AD, I think. And in this future, New York is a rebel island cut off by water from the rest of America. The mainland is highly repressive. It's dark and book banning is in. Uh, being gay means a stay in a reprogramming camp. But sort of against this background, one of the things that impressed me is I usually see female protagonists, often female amateur sleuths and private eyes. People tend to characterize them as feisty. But thankfully, P.I. Simone Pierce is the anti-feist. She's a matter of fact. She treats criminal investigation more as a job to pay the rent. So whether she's lying, she's shooting, or she's bandaging her bloodied hands after a near-death episode on a bridge, Simone displays zero need to have pluck or spunk or any of those other attributes that Feisty often pals around with. Hey, Paul D. Marks here checking in from the City of Angels, or is that Devils, Los Angeles. I'm the author of the Seamus Award-winning novel White Heat, the noir novel Vortex, and a variety of short stories. My fave literary PI would have to be Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. Maybe not so original, but so damn true. My first exposure to him was in the bogey version of The Big Sleep. And my discovery of him as a literary PI came from A Treasury of Great Mysteries, a double volume of books my mom had that were a collection of mystery stories and novels. The Big Sleep was in there. I read it and was hooked like a junkie on heroin. After my first shot, I needed another fix and then another until I devoured all of Chandler. As an L.A. native, I can especially relate to Chandler's vision of L.A. I dig Marlowe because he's his own boss and doesn't take shit from anyone. He's just what Chandler described, a man neither tarnished nor afraid, a man of honor, the best man in his world and good enough for any world. In a word, he's the man. And he's the man we all want to be, isn't he? If you have a question for our UnPanel, find us on Twitter at WriterTypes, and let us know what you want our next group of authors to answer. Who knows? You might hear your question on the show. You know, people probably don't know, Steve, that you and I share the same agent. Yeah, no kidding. Who is it? <laughs> Her name is Amy. She lives in Canada, but she totally exists and is a real human being. I can't wait to meet her. All joking aside, Amy Moore Benson uh, is a fantastic agent, and we know how hard it is to get your agent on the phone. So we tricked her into talking to us by inviting her on the show for our Six Shots segment. This, of course, is where we pose six questions to a publishing industry professional. And since Amy is an agent to a long list of authors besides Eric and I, we spoke to her from her home base in Toronto, Canada, and asked her all of your burning questions about being a literary agent. An agent is necessary if you want, I mean, truthfully, if you want to sell a book. And I think an agent is necessary if you are somebody who wants to keep the two parts of the publishing business separate, which is the craft and the business. A good agent is an advocate. They're a partner. A good agent is somebody who is as passionate about your work, maybe more passionate about your work than you are. Every author does not need an agent. It's really about how you want to manage your career. If they are interested in having somebody to do the heavy lifting, uh, when I think about my role, one of the primary roles is to preserve the relationship between the editor and the publisher and the author. So it's my job to have some of the more difficult conversations or to negotiate some of the more difficult things so that the author can really focus on the creative part of that job. There is no formula 
for a bestseller. There are so many variables involved and they are changing so quickly. I would love to say the best ingredient in a bestseller is just fantastic writing. There is so much that is rewarding about working with authors. I haven't worked a single day without being grateful. It is such an incredible thing to have a hand in shaping and helping to shape the written word that comes out. And when those written words reach readers and those readers respond, there's just nothing more rewarding. One of the hardest things I ever encounter is reading something I really love that I know is good, but that I know I can't sell. It is a balance, it is a struggle, but at the end of the day, I can't forget that my job is to sell and to help my clients understand that something can be really, really amazing and beautiful and fantastic, but I can't find a place for it or it can't find the audience that it deserves. I absolutely take it personally when a book that I am pitching, representing, does not sell. Getting the rejections is heartbreaking for me, and I know it's heartbreaking for my clients. And there is nothing better than the flip side of that, which is telling my client, I think I've found a good home for their work. Wow, Amy, that was great. Thank you very much. Um, but while I have you on the phone, I was wondering if you've read my latest manuscript? Amy? Amy? She hung up, Steve. Listeners out there can't see it, but we are here in my home office, which serves as the writer type studio. And behind us is a wall of bookshelves. And look there on the top row there, Steve. And how many books by Joe R. Lansdale would you say are there on that top shelf? Well, hold on a second. I'm counting by twos. All right, let's measure. Here, I'm, yeah. I'm going to hold out my arm. And I'm a fairly tall guy. He's got at least his whole arm length. That's right. <laughs> There's, there's an arm's length of Joe Lyra Lansdale books. There is a lot of Joe Lansdale in this room. So suffice it to say, I'm a fan. Yes, a well, fanboy. Well, Joe has a new book out, the latest in his Happen Leonard series, and shooting is underway on season two of the Happen Leonard TV series, which makes me very excited. Now, Steve, you were busy the day that I had a chance to talk to Joe. You didn't actually call or write an email or... Did I not? Did I forget to do that? You could have texted. I'm sorry. That was an oversight. I apologize. I think you wanted Joe all to yourself. Uh, maybe I did. But I had the opportunity to talk to Joe via telephone from his home base in the bottoms of East Texas. And I tried not to fanboy too hard, but you'll have to tell me if I succeeded or not. You didn't. Okay. Well, congratulations on Rusty Puppy, which is, according to my math, the 10th Happen Leonard novel. Thank you. Now, did you ever think after all these years you'd still be writing about these troublemakers? No, no. When I first started, I didn't even know I would be writing a series. I wrote a book called Savage Season. I did, I did two, Cold in July and Savage Season, and I wanted to try to ring the bells of those old gold medal crime novels I used to read. Yeah. And had such an impact on me. About three years later, Hap started talking to me again, and I wrote Mucho Mojo, and then I wrote them fairly regularly for a while until I moved publishers to Knopf. And then because they didn't have the back list, they weren't anxious to do the front list. And then because of that, I was kind of stymied there for about eight years. And then I was able to get all the books back. And then I promptly moved to Mulholland. <laughs> but they've been very, very good about continuing the series. So uh, this is the second one I've done for them. And, I, and I'm working on a third right now. 
So when I push your work on people who haven't read it before, they often ask, what should I read first? You know, where do I start? And I want to know, when you get that question, do you steer people toward the Happen Leonard? I usually steer them towards the bottoms, and that's because it seems to have a little broader appeal. I, I don't really know those things myself. I just write the books I want to write, and then you know, like the chips fall where they may. But over the years, I've found that that's, without a doubt, my best-selling book even to this day, and it continues to be my most popular book. Really? So I, I'll start them there, and I'll say if they like series, I steer them to the Happen Leonard. Well, The Bottoms is a great place to start. It's one of my favorites, and I'm excited about the movie. And now, is that something that is still moving forward? Yeah, yeah. Bill Paxton, I plan to do that uh, before too long. It's uh, yeah, we've been uh, kind of had some barriers here and there, but I think we're on the right track now. So you recently went back to your pulp roots with the collection Dead on the Bones, and some of your early work, stuff like the Drive-In. Those books are just crazy, and it makes me wonder. Do you see a limit to your imagination, or do you ever self-censor in that way? No, no. I have different compartments in my brain, you know. I just wrote a prequel to Bubba Hotep that's just crazy as hell, oh. and uh, it's, it's a novel length, and it's certainly crazy. And uh, I, I'm still writing short stories that are in that vein, but I've always found that, in general, I prefer short stories that are highly imaginative to novels. I, I think that it's easy to lag in a novel when it's really out there, and it works much better in a short form. All right, our listeners at Writer Types, they want the hard-hitting questions, Joe. They want to get down to the nitty-gritty, so here it comes. Once and for all, what does the R in Joe R. Lansdale stand for? Richard. I gotta tell you, that's a little bit disappointing. <laughs> I thought it was Rupert, didn't you? Joe Rupert. <laughs> My whole name is Joe Richard Harold Lansdale, but I just thought that was a little too much. In your Happen Leonard series, as well as in many of your other books, you deal pretty openly with race issues. And I want to know, how do you think things have improved or not improved over the years? You know, that's a complicated question because in some ways it's improved dramatically. There is no way you can compare now to the 60s and the 50s or even uh, in the South in the 70s because uh, it was absolutely Jim Crow. And even after, you know, civil rights bills were, were made, uh, there was still tr tremendous racism in the South, you know, with water fountains that said colored. And, you know, you go to the theater when I was growing up, they had to go to the balcony. They weren't allowed, you know, in the, the lower level. And, and uh, they, they were treated very, very badly. And, you know, even people that like me that were white, you know, we were, I was uh, appalled by this stuff because I grew up in a racist society. So in that way, you know, there is a dramatic change, but that said, there's so much more that needs to be done because for some reason, when President Obama came in, the racists just went nuts and politicians gave them more confidence to come out of their stupid clauses and be stupid. We have this new rise of racism among a certain group of people that I think is uh, a little disconcerting. Okay, to finish up here, my daughters, aged 9 and 10, they know your work from when I read them The Boar, which was their first Lansdale. Uh -huh. And my daughter Molly wanted me to ask you if you would write a book, uh, in her words, a crime murder book for kids. So something with a lot of death and, and terrible crimes in it. She sounds like my daughter, Casey. When, when Casey was little, she and my 
son, they, they wanted to just do this thing where the uh, family writes a, a, a horror story, the horror story. As we were doing it, my uh, daughter wanted to have a, a scene where this person was hung, and we put that in there where, where this person was hanged. And when we turned it in, they wrote back and said, uh, well, this part's a little you know, too strong. We need to take that out. And I remember Casey saying, well, shit, it's just not the same. <laughs> and I thought, when would you hear language like that? Uh, <laughs> okay, we've learned some interesting things today, Eric. Reed Farrell Coleman taught us you can still be friends with someone who has murdered seven people. Yes, and Jess Laurie taught us that there are plenty of places to bury a dead body in winter. And Joe Lansdale showed us that kids say the darndest things. Well, that does it for this episode. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. You can find us on Facebook, and don't forget to rate us on the iTunes store. Check us out on Stitcher, and you can always find us on SoundCloud. Maybe write a review and subscribe to the podcast if you like what you hear. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. You can find out more about Steve's books, including the Greg Salem series at swloudon.com. And you can find out more about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us next time when we talk to more writer types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>